Welcome back to another episode of Remnant Stew, the odd little podcast for the curious mind. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm Leah. Today's episode, we'll be discussing curious stories of items lost, items found, and items both lost and found. Finders keepers. Do you have an appetite for the curious and downright bizarre? Then you've come to the right place, my friend. Pull up a chair and grab a spoon for today's intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. So, Steve, do you have any personal stories of lost and found? Oh, we've all lost things. Uh, I've, uh, as a teacher, I'm always helping other teachers find lost items, you know, that, that get uh, uh, lost throughout the day. Purses, uh, keys. In one case, somebody actually lost their car. It was an interesting <laughs> story. A, a student actually drove off with the teacher's car. But uh, it's always frustrating to, um, uh, to look for things and not be able to find them. And then months later, my father always said, you'll find it when you're looking for something else. That's right. And that does seem to happen. That's absolutely you know, you true. You look for something else, then you find the item that you were looking for. You know what? We have several items at home that if you're looking for it, you can't find it. They're nail clippers, right. uh, tape measure, and scissors. At my house, it's the magnifying glass because I'm ah. at, the, <laughs> at the age that I need to be able to, my wife and I both need the magnifying glass to read some things. We keep dozens of them and we still can't seem to find them. Well, I posted on uh, on my personal Facebook. I asked my friends if they had any really cool lost right. or found stories, and my friend Rona uh, did. She she gave me a story and uh, and told me that I could use it. So here's here's the thing from Rona. From Rona, she is a diver. She loves to dive. Rona the diver. Okay, Rona this the is diver. Better all the time. <laughs> and on a night dive in Roatan, a Caribbean island about forty miles north of Honduras. Uh, there were people that were on a boat for a day of fishing, and she says that they were driving and they were they were under the influence of something. Uh, definitely. <laughs> the captain or the owner of the boat either was drinking and smoking or breathed in the fumes or something. Inhibited. Somehow. Anyway, her boat, her boat, which mm-hmm. none of that was going on, apparently, uh, was stopped over the reef and they all went in diving. Now, remember, this is night diving. So all of the divers went in, and the captain of the boat stayed there. Well, the fishing boat was coming straight for our dive boat. And our boat captain waved the other boat off, she says. Instead of going out into deeper deeper water, they went into shallow, into the shallow uh, water and ran aground on the reef. So our boat captain said he was not coming over to rescue them. Apparently, he's a little perturbed. But if they swam over to our dive boat, he would take them in. He's so, going to make them earn it. That's earn. right. <laughs> I like this guy, right? right. Well, I, and I don't I don't know anything about diving, but I would assume that you don't – once your divers go in, you don't move. Right. You want to stay you know, right, right there. Right. So, I mean, so it makes sense. they can sense. find you when they he come wasn't back just, up. He wasn't just being snarky. So but, it off or walk it off. Swim it off. There that's you go. That's right. And so these drunk high people, along with their huge dog and ice chest with their – They brought their ice chest along with them. That's (laughs) right. Swam over to the dive boat. So she says this all went on while the divers were all down doing our night dive. And while she was, uh, you know, diving, she found a wallet and keys lying on the reef. So she picked them up, 
brought them on board at the end of our dive. And she said, when, when I got up and I noted, got up on top onto the boat, right. she noticed these people in the dog on Extra the boat. Extra people that weren't here when we went down. Right. And she thought she got on the wrong boat. She says, it happens. Right. It, it happen. happens. But then she noticed that this lady looked very familiar. I had seen her driver's license in the wallet. So I asked her if she had lost anything. And yes, she had lost her wallet and keys while she was swimming over to the boat. So that was her that was loss miraculous. She found it and brought it back to That's her. That's right. But they had the dog in the ice chest, you know. Right. I wonder so. if she got a reward for finding her wallet. Uh, something out of the ice chest. Something out of the ice chest, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. So, so that's that's Rona's lost and found story. That's a good story. Um, all all kinds of interesting stories about things that have been lost and found in strange places. I came across one that came out of Brazil, and it involved a tortoise. And, uh, in fact, it was a really, really unusual uh, occurrence back in, um, let's say, I believe the year was 2012 when this uh, happened. Um, the article comes to us. Um, it says, uh, talk about a reunion. A family in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, lost its beloved pet turtle 30 years ago. Despite searching frantically, they never found her. Until recently, when they discovered her in the storage room. Same turtle, been lost 30 years. The, fa- the Almeida family, her owners, were ecstatic. They assumed that she ran away when builders working on the house left the door open. You know, turtles are known to just dash right out the door right. when you leave it open. <laughs> and you not notice yeah. that, right? How did that turtle get away so fast? <laughs> so they assumed that, uh, that, that the turtle was gone. But they found her. However, kind of a sad note, it wasn't until after their father, Leonel, died recently that the Almeida children began clearing out the second floor room which he had filled with broken electrical items and always kept locked. Leonel's son, Leandro, said that he was astonished to find Manuela, that was the turtle's name, Manuela. I like it. Right? Alive inside the box containing an old record player. An old record player is astonishing enough, but a live turtle from 30 years ago, that's even more of a find. According to Leandro, he said, I put the box on the pavement for the rubbishman to collect. And the neighbor said, you're not going to throw out that turtle, are you? (laughs) (laughs) I looked and I saw at that moment I had turned white. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, said Leandro. This is according to the Daily Mail. That's where this article comes from. That's a reputable organization for sure. Well, now his sister, Lenita, uh, said that uh, she had been given the tortoise as a child. Everything my father thought he could fix, he picked up and he brought it home. He found an old television he thought he might be able to use parts of to fix another one in the future, so he brought that one home too, and he just kept accumulating things. We never dared go inside that room. We're all thrilled to have Manuela back. Manuela went inside that room. Evidently, evidently, 30 years before, (laughs) Manuela went inside the room and uh, just camped out for 30 years. Nobody had seen her. She was in there with all the broken electronic equipment. But no one can understand how she managed to survive for 30 years in there. It's just unbelievable. It's kind of what I thought when I read this. Uh, <laughs> at first, it is unbelievable. However, it is believable when you understand the nature of Turtle that she was. You see, there was a veterinarian in Rio de Janeiro. His name was Jefferson Pyers. And he came out and explained to the family that the red-footed species of tortoise, which is the kind Manuela was, can go for long periods of time without eating. They are particularly resilient, and they can survive for two or three years without any food at all. But 30 years. 30 years. So how do they do it? Now, in the wild, um, they eat fruits, 
leaves, dead animals, and even feces. Because if you're desperate, you'll eat most anything. He said that Manuela most likely survived from eating termites from the wooden floors of the storeroom. So not only was Manuela missing from the family, she was probably saving them by destroying the termites that were inevitably destroying the home. So that's the amazing story of Manuela the turtle reappearing after 30 years from a home in Rio de Janeiro. That is crazy. I've never found anything after 30 years. That uh, That's a long time of being lost. Uh, right. Okay, so I have a story of lost and not so found. Um, but first, when is a gem not a gemstone? When is a gem not a gemstone? Is this the trivia challenge already? Uh, not well. Oh, it's trivia challenge for story. you. How about that? Yeah, that's right. It's okay. part of my story. Oh. Uh, the answer is amber, because amber is a resin. It's considered a gem because it's used in a lot of jewelry, and I'm sure you've seen it. Right. Uh, but it is not a stone. It's a resin. It's petrified resin. Petrified resin. Amber, okay. And fake amber is really easily uh, made nowadays, and it it looks almost absolutely realistic. However, one of the ways to to determine if it's real, you can scrape it with a knife. Fake amber flakes. Real amber is powdery. Uh, Real amber also should float in salt water and also will warm up quickly in your hand. Greeks gave it the name electron, which is no, has become the word for electricity. It's the base of the word for electricity uh, because it, it okay. produces static when you rub it. Right. The Greeks also thought that amber was pieces of the sun that had broken off and fell into the sea each night. That would make sense. It's a beautiful color, isn't it? Okay. So what movie do you think of when you think of amber? Um, hmm. Actually, I was thinking back of the phrase you said, amber flakes. It reminded me of a student I had a few years ago. But... <laughs> Was that her? Was that her name? Amber yes. Flakes. Yeah, name and character. But anyway. Um, oh, moving along. Moving along. I'm not sure what. Oh, uh, Jurassic Park. Probably Jurassic when we Park. think of Amber. Yeah. Yeah. If you'll remember from Jurassic Park, they created all of those dinosaurs from what's called an inclusion of mosquitoes. So amber can, the resin can in, uh, encapsulate different animals, and. Fun fact is that scientists have actually tried to do that. I don't know if they watched that whole movie or not, <laughs> but, but uh, they have tried to do that. They have not yet been successful. Well, maybe that's a good thing, but anyway. <laughs> but the the reason that uh, I'm talking about amber is because there was a room made of amber panels that covered the walls and ceiling. It was uh, created in, nine, I'm sorry, not 19, but 1701. Uh, it covered the the walls and the ceiling in a room at the palace of Frederick, the first king of Prussia. So, okay, so in 1701, they made a whole room out of amber. That's That's right. That had to be a large collection because usually you only see it in very small pieces, correct? Well, and and they mine it in very small pieces. You just get, and they mine it out of the, the sea. And so I wondered, too, how they made it into panels. So Frederick, the king of Prussia, had this room of amber made, all right? Right. And I think that, uh, well, I don't think I know because I looked it up. Uh, That's they, what we're here for, to know things, <laughs> That's right? right. And so here we go. There's not amber deposits big enough to plane into panels. So what they do is they take the, the smaller pieces and they have a way of gluing and melting them together oh like osb and then (laughs) and then and then planing it into panels and so that's what they did and um 
And there were carvings and mirrors and gemstones to create a warm, glowing, decadent and lavish room that was truly a priceless and just dazzling piece of art considered to be the eighth wonder of the world. So Mm. Prussia was the precursor to Germany. East Germany, yeah. Right, Right. East Germany. So, uh, and that's a little uh, ironic because in 1716, Peter the Great of Russia, upon a visit to Prussia, admired the room so much that Frederick I presented presented it to him as a gift. That was nice. To cement the alliance between their two countries. So the Amber Room was dismantled and sent to Russia in 18 large boxes to be installed in the Winter House in St. Petersburg. Okay. So Germany, uh, uh, rather the King of Prussia, gave it to the Emperor of Russia. That's right. right? So in 1755, Tsarina Elizabeth ordered the room to be moved to the Catherine Palace in Pushkin. Uh, an, Italian, an Italian designer then redesigned the room to fit into its new larger space using additional amber shipped from Berlin. Okay. After several other 18th century renovations, the room covered more than 590 square feet and contained over six tons or 13,000 pounds of amber. That's a lot of amber. The room took over 10 years to construct, and it's said that the room was breathtakingly beautiful when lit all around with candlelight. It was a national treasure for over 200 years. People came from far and wide to see that, I bet. That's right. But then it was lost. Uh Uh-oh. So in 1941, during World War II Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, the Soviets tried to evacuate all the art and treasure they could, but the Amber Room was found to be too brittle to be safely disassembled. So the Soviets hastily built false walls over the amber panels to hide them, but it was all in vain. When the Nazis arrived, they knew exactly what to look for, and they tore down the false wall, pried off the amber, packed it back into crates. Uh, it was then installed in a Kaliningrad. Cali- no, sorry. How do you pronounce that? Kaliningrad. 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 No, it's yeah, Kaliningrad. Museum. Okay, what? so wait, stop for just a second now. So back in 1700, Russia came to visit Prussia. the King of Prussia. King of Prussia. King of Russia said, hey, man, that amber room is beautiful. King of Prussia said, you want it? It's yours because we're good friends. That all washed away in uh, in the 1940s. And when, That's right. when uh, Russia was invaded by Germany and they tried to hide the room behind false walls, but the Germans figured it out. And so they, they pried it off and took it back to Germany with or to a different part of Russia with them, at least, that they occupied. That's right. And then they put it in a museum. Okay. Uh, But when things began to look bad for the Germans, the Amber Room was, again, crated up with all its accompanying accompanying ornaments and beaded jewelry for safekeeping. Oh, okay. Never to be seen again. So when the Russians were pushing back to the West, the Germans knew, okay, we we don't want them to have it back. And this happened with a lot of art at that time. A lot of art was was either destroyed or lost. uh, Goering had train cars full of it. That's right. So some believe that the room's contents were destroyed. In 1945, during the Allied bombings of the area, others say crates were placed in a submarine to convey it to uh, safety, but the sub was attacked and sank. So it could be at the bottom of the ocean. And Davy Jones' locker. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. There were intense investigative reports or efforts, sorry, to locate the lost Amber Room, but to no avail. Whatever happened, the Amber Room has been lost, never to be seen again. Uh Treasure hunters have been searching Poland and Germany for the Amber Room. 
And the leading theory is that it was buried in an underground tunnel along with oh, other Nazi yeah. loot. I've heard that uh, that tunnel theory by a lot That's of people. That's right. Several times teams have claimed to be closing in only to be disappointed. So every okay. now and then a news story pops up that people have found it, and yet they haven't. Well, it's interesting. Uh, so there is also another bizarre aspect of the story, which is the Get Amber Room. more strange room. than that already? Right. It's the Amber Room curse because... Oh, of course. There's got to be a curse. There's right? got to be a curse. Many people connected to the room have met untimely deaths. Uh, you know, there was a war going on, but Right. Well, I that guess. makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, take the German museum director, Alfred Rode, Rode I think. I think Rode, yeah. and his wife, for example, who died of typhus while the KGB was investigating the room. Or General Gessoff, Gessoff, mm-hmm. Gessoff, a, a Roman, a Roman, <laughs> really a Russian, strange. boy, I'm really off base there, <laughs> a Russian intelligence officer who died in a car crash after he talked to a journalist about the Amber Room. Hmm. Or most disturbing of all, Amber Room hunter and former German soldier George Stein, who in 1987 was murdered in a Bavarian forest. He was naked. <gasps> And his stomach had been opened with a scalpel. Now that's a that's a that's not a nice way to go. Um, so there's this uh, people looking for the Amber Room have met untimely demises. Is that right? That's right. But there's a lot of people looking for it too. I think there's there's just yeah, a matter of a, some people are gonna yeah gonna well, meet some, some audience. The averages will catch up with you. Uh, wow, but be, I wonder what it looked like. It would be really nice to see it. Well, you can see a replica because uh, the history of the new Amber Room, at least, is known for sure. The reconstruction began in 1979 and was completed 25 years and $11 million later. Dedicated by Russian President Vladimir Putin, the then German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder. Mm -hmm. I need to rewrite these and just write the names out so I don't have to pronounce Uh it. The new room marked the 300-year anniversary of St. Petersburg in a unifying ceremony that echoed the peaceful sediment behind the original okay. gift. Oh, so they kind of come back full circle. We're buddies again. Let's build another room together. That's right. The room That's remains nice. on display to the public at a museum outside of St. Petersburg. Nice. Okay. So, so that's you can really go see it. I'd like to see that. I'm sure it looks really amazing to see all that amber in one place. It's got to be the highest collection of amber in one place anywhere in the world, I would think, or at least. I d- you know, I amber. don't know that, but I think so. I, th- I think it, it, that's a given. But there are pictures uh, on our website of both the original room and the reconstruction. Oh, okay. That sounds great. Well, you know, not everything that's found is as glorious as that amber room would be defined. Uh, here's a story that comes from Gainesville, Florida. A contractor was doing some work on a home, minding his own business. He wouldn't bother nobody. He was just uh, doing work on the home, you know. When he found in a crawl space behind a wall several jars containing human tongues. Wait, that could only happen in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, do you know that meme, Florida man? You're supposed to you're supposed to Google Florida man and then your birthday to come up with whatever weird story <laughs> happened by on Flor- your birthday yeah, yeah. So that Florida man did. Anyway. Well, this one uh, happened a few years ago. Uh, police were dispatched to the home on Northwest 16th Avenue after receiving a 911 call that reported human remains from the 1960s had been found. Evidently, the house belongs to the ex-wife of a Dr. Ronald A. Bauman who was a research pathologist at the University of Florida. I think the University of Florida is in Gainesville, correct? It appears that at some point back in the late 60s, Dr. Bauman 
brought the specimens home to conduct a little extra research. Because He's, that's what you do at right. home. Yeah. <laughs> i got to take these tongues home. I'm not quite through with my research on them. He stored them in the crawl space to keep them cool, and then he forgot all about them. Talk about your absent-minded professor Absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, how do you forget uh, several jars full of tongues? Well, probably he wasn't supposed to have them in the first place, maybe. But anyway, a police spokesman stated that there were about half a dozen jars containing the tongues. Dr. Bauman, who still lives in Gainesville but no longer at this residence, was picked up by police and brought to the scene. He stated that the tongues were used in neck and thyroid research. Evidently, he brought these home one weekend and forgot to take them back to work. A spokesman for the University of Florida, Steve Orlando, that's a good uh, good name for somebody in Florida, I suppose. Right. He stated, I don't know what the police and laws would have been like 50 years ago, but I can tell you that today that's not something that would be permitted. There are very strict federal and state laws and university policies that, policies that prohibit that. It would be neither appropriate nor legal for a faculty member to bring something like that home. Well, thank goodness they've cleared that up. You know, let the, not uh, not letting those loose ends, uh, loopholes get uh, get letting people bring tongues home from work comes to us from the Daily Mail. That that I mean, did he bring it home on the subway on the bus? Um, you know, I'm, that's... I'm thinking he probably drove them home in his car. <laughs> well, now there are some pretty inspiring finds though from time to time. Here's another story that comes from uh, from 1991 up in the state of Pennsylvania. Here are good stories from Pennsylvania. Back in April of 1991, a financial analyst from Philadelphia paid $4 for an old painting because he liked the frame. It turned out that the painting concealed a copy of the Declaration of Independence that was printed on July 4th, 1776. Oh, okay. That's, that is neat. That Very is neat. Yeah. I would love to find something like that. So a copy of it, though. So it right. wasn't a Xerox copy. No, no, it wasn't a, f- a fake copy. It was one of the originals. Um, the uh, find was uh, was authenticated by a fellow named David Redden, who was vice president of Sotheby's uh, auction house. He says, here was the most important single printed page in the world, and he found it in the most spectacularly beautiful condition. It took one second to know that it was right, he added. But what really astonished us was the condition. It was so fresh and so clean. The painting was an old torn depiction of a country scene was purchased at the flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. When the owner removed the painting, the frame fell apart and he found a folded document between the canvas and the wood backing that turned out to be an old copy of the Declaration of Independence. And so this is how they know it was one of the originals. Uh, after the Continental Congress adopted the declaration on that great day, July 4th, 1776. It hired a Philadelphia printer named John Dunlap to print copies that evening to carry the news of independence to the people. Redden speculates that about 200 such copies were printed and distributed to government leaders, the Army, and throughout all 13 colonies. Now that makes sense. Right. The copy found behind the old painting is one of only 26 known to remain. It's printed on black ink and uh, on slightly yellowed rag paper, 15 and a half by 19 and three quarter inches in size. Now, the uh, the fellow who found it, the financial analyst, he had uh, dollar signs go off in his uh, head immediately. And he put it up for auction in 1991, and it sold for $2,400,000. And then nine years later, in the year 2000, it was put up for auction again, 
and sold for $8,140,000. And what did he he spend on it to begin with? $4. I I think he got his pretty good investment he made on his $4 picture frame (laughs) that had a nice return of $2,400,000. So you see, there are some pretty inspiring things to be found. That would be interesting to try to go back and find where that painting came from. Like right. whose grandmother stuffed some, that, that back there. Somebody put it there for right. safekeeping at some point, and uh, then they didn't tell but, anybody it was there. Because I'm assuming the painting wasn't that old. The painting was... I mean, uh, obviously it was old know. enough to fall apart, but, right. but not Yeah, it doesn't say how old it was, but it was, it was the, this copy was, had been there for quite a while. Well, the subject of lost and found is there's just so much out there. Maybe we can do even more episodes on this. Right. Uh, But lost and waiting to be found. There are so many ships under the sea. One estimate is that there are around three million shipwrecks across the globe. Three million. Three million just waiting to be found because we've been sailing. You know, man has been sailing for a long, long time. Centuries. At least 100 of them could contain cargoes worth $50 million each or more. So if you have not figured out what you want to be when you grow up, a me, treasure hunter a treasure hunter is, is a possibility. There's a whole industry centered around finding and recovering sunken treasure. Odyssey, Odyssey Marine Exploration is one of the very small number of specialist countries companies with the budget and expertise to use the new game-changing technologies to the full. Mm -hmm. At their disposal are advanced tethered robots that can dive to 4,000 meters and beyond, and lights and claws capable of withstanding the devastating crushing pressures of the deep. And I want to say, I don't know if it was that company, but that's what they used to explore the Titanic. Right, yeah. Um, I've seen that movie. Treasure can, of course, be gold and jewels, but a lot of treasure is found in historical artifacts such as cannons and anything recovered intact from ancient ships or even historical ships like the Titanic. Seafarer Exploration Corporation is a good example of the modern prospecting company focused on archaeologically sensitive exploration, research, and recovery of historic shipwrecks engaged in a painstaking research that might or might not lead to riches. You never know. So again, if you're trying to figure out what you want to be, this could be it for you. One particularly lucrative shipwreck still to be found is the Flor de la Mar, a Portuguese vessel which sank somewhere north of Sumatra in the 1500s. It was said, or it is said, that it, it had been carrying 60 tons of gold, 60 tons of gold, 200 chests of diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and sapphires, Worth at today's prices as much as three billion dollars. So, and there's laws. Who knows if you get to right. keep Portugal all of that? Portugal would probably want that back. That would help their economy a lot. I would imagine. But I'm <laughs> thinking there's a little bit of a finders keepers thing too. A little, some, you know, like maybe a fraction. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you get a fraction of that, yeah, that would uh, be all right. But if you're gonna hunt for lost treasure, be smart about it. I don't know how true this is, but but this headline got me. Man digs 12-foot deep hole without realizing his metal detector was picking up his steel-toe-capped safety boots. That's like that's the human version of chasing your tail. That's right. <laughs> yes. I know it's got to be down here somewhere. It's, it's beeping like Creole. Oh, it's my boots. <laughs> Outstanding. He thought he had found gold. <laughs> well, that brings us to today's trivia challenge. The trivia challenge. We love trivia here at Remnant Stew. Keeping in mind the topic of Lost and Found, this movie featured a frantic scene inside a sunken World War II submarine 
that would most likely be the Gatto-class submarine USS Flyer, SS-250, which was sunk by a mine. Fourteen officers and men survived the sinking. The wreck of the USS Flyer was not found until six years after this movie was released. Oh, it's quite a frantic scene. You may recall seeing this movie, particularly if you have young ones in your house. And it also shows the mines. Right, it does show the the mines. Yeah, around the submarine. So how do you play the trivia challenge? Well, first of all, like and follow our Facebook page at at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post and put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned on in the next episode of Remnant Stew. That's right. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen, Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Audio is produced by Philip Sinkfeld, who does his best to make us sound good. <laughs> Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram and discuss our episodes. If you have an idea you would like to hear us cover in a future episode, you can email suggestions to us. We at, love ideas. That's right. At staycurious at remnantstew.com. Now, before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any new stew. Maybe take the time to give us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Remnant Stew is free to download and free to listen to, but it is not free to produce. Giving us a review helps us out by making the show visible to potential sponsors. Also, remember to share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, commanding officers, bank tellers, and anyone else you might come in contact with. And until the next time, remember, please choose to be kind. And And always always stay stay curious. curious.